I'm Peter Medlin, and you are listening to the Teacher's Lounge Podcast. If you've never heard this show before, well, you came at the right time. It's the end of the year special where we're going to be looking back at just a few of our favorite conversations from 2021. There will be three condensed interviews, a feature story, and we'll have you out of here in under an hour. Now, if you know me, you know that I love every episode of this show and constantly am telling people and my bosses that the newest episode is the best one that we've ever done, but these are just a few that we wanted to highlight one more time. And if this is your first time hearing Teacher's Lounge, good news, it's a simple idea. We've all had teachers in our lives who shaped who we are, and we want to hear about the educators who inspired you. So be a part of the show. Tell us about the person who comes to your mind when we say that, and shoot us an email and nominate an educator in your life. Every single person you'll hear on this and every episode is nominated by you. And again, today we have three conversations. One, we are revisiting my chat with art teacher and comic book author Marcel Walker. He's an artist and co-creator of the educational comic series Pow Superheroes of the Holocaust with the Holocaust Center of Pittsburgh. Then a chat with Rayon Gibson, an elementary school principal, former school counselor, and children's book author. And finally, our last conversation of the day is with Jeff Pittner, a high school psychology teacher and coach of their acclaimed esports team. Got a lot to get to today, including a feature about how the school bus driver shortage continues to impact students, and I got to take a ride one morning to see it firsthand. But before we get to all that, let's jump straight into our first conversation of the day. This is my conversation with Marcel Walker, co-creator of the educational comic series Puts Pow, Superheroes of the Holocaust. He also worked with Pittsburgh's Toonzeum on an exhibition called From MLK to March, Civil Rights in Comics and Cartoons with civil rights icon, the late representative John Lewis. Marcel and I are also massive comic book fans and had a lot of fun just talking about the history of comics and education and especially in regards to the Holocaust in civil rights comics. Enjoy. I was reading an article doing some research for our interview, and I think there was a story that you told in there talking about how I think it was like your aunt had a bunch of comics or like had them spread out. Your cousin was was picking out ones. And I think this is a very early one where you were, we could talk about Marvel and DC and lack of diversity and everything that your cousin was like, hey, give me the one that looks with the guy that looks like me on the cover. Hand, hand me the one with the brother on the cover. That one I remember specifically. That yeah. was Tales of the New Teen Titans number one because it had Cyborg on the cover. I mean, we were just sitting at, at the at the dining room table and he asked me to forward that along to him. Like in that moment, like it connected because I'll admit I lived in a very in in a lot of ways for all the disruption in my my home life and all of the like I said, the incidents of trauma. But in many ways, my upbringing was very blissful. There's a lot of things I just didn't have to just didn't think about because of the way I was brought up. And I admittedly, when I was young, young, didn't think about race that much so when I encountered comics also at that time you didn't think too much about like the people behind the scenes like who made them like what did they look like because nowadays with media like you can just find anything anytime right these people were just names and books at that time so you know while you got more and more familiar with this person writing this series or this group of characters or whatever you know I didn't really have an impression of what the creators looked like and I maybe had like a burgeoning sense of the lack of inclusivity and uh and representation in comics but it was still it was you know very underdeveloped so long story short like i never imagined anything but like me being able to create the characters i wanted to or whatever but when my cousin said that thing about you know hand me that book with the brother on the cover like some synapses fired like oh that's that's important like that's a thing like like other people don't see this in the way that i do like that's it's important for people to see that um, yeah. 
it like it awoke something with me like my own perceptions with this which never went away you know which is good but you know superman was still my dude and but i do think it's really fascinating when we talk about what we have with your work with with the, the holocaust center comics on one hand has kind of always been a medium that's on the fringes right that bucks the status quo when we talk about whether it be Superman or Marvel in the 60s or, you know, Persepolis, like Marjean Satrapi's books, things like that. But then on the other hand, it's like the big companies like Marvel and DC are these big corporate entities that often really do botch, you know, diversity or have these really bad stereotypes in books. And I think it's, it's really interesting. Like, I'm curious for you right now, thinking about it, like in 2021, like how do you see comics place as like a subversive medium that is able to confront these things. My work with Hutzpah yeah, has been transformative because like I knew at six years old, I wanted to make comics, but I started to learn gradually. Like I said, you know, I started making submissions in my teens and that's the thing I've had to kind of reconcile myself to with these things that I love. They are owned by corporate entities and they serve ultimately yeah. capitalistic. Per- so like, all right, but I can still love them at the core for what they are and that's okay. But I get older and opportunities present themselves. And I find myself now working for the Holocaust Center of Pittsburgh. Right, which again is fascinating when you think about just the history of comics when we're talking about the Holocaust because it immediately people think Mouse and Art Spiegelman, which is you know the first comic ever to win a Pulitzer Prize. So there is even in comics, a history of Holocaust educational related material. Absolutely. You know, so I've, I've read up and studied more. And when you look at how the Holocaust narrative started to bubble up in American comics, first, you get roughly a decade or so after the end of the war, maybe not even that. But when you first started seeing the Holocaust being acknowledged in comics, you first start seeing them acknowledged in two types of comics, military themed comics and horror comics. Right. And that makes a lot of sense when you think about it, like of all the places you're going to see it, like what what are the, the lenses that we would be looking at the Holocaust through? And then you move forward a little bit more and then you started seeing even more narratives like it started uh, it started manifesting through more mainstream medium or mainstream genres, I should say, uh, particularly superheroes. So you started seeing the first stories where you had oftentimes background players and background characters who had you know, been Holocaust survivors or they've been involved, they've been at the war. But Mouse, yes, Mouse is the thing that gets referenced all the time when I have discussions about Hutzpah. And rightly so. And I, I totally understand it because it's such a powerful narrative. Part of the thinking behind Hutzpah's creation was there are three notable Holocaust works of literature that get utilized again and again and again in classrooms. Now there's a myriad of works, but the three, the big ones that get utilized are Diary of Anne Frank, Night by Elie Wiesel, and Mouse. And they're all wonderful works and they should be, you know, looked at in academia and in scholastic settings. Like they should absolutely be utilized. The thing about all three of those is none of them were created for that purpose. They were, they have been utilized for that, but they were designed as memoirs. Right. So from the outset, the idea with Hutzpah was we are, let's create something that is specifically designed to be used in academic settings, in scholastic settings that educators can use with their students to facilitate Holocaust learning. And it's also designed, like it, it inhabits two worlds because it's also designed at the same time to be accessible 
to general audiences. So you don't have to be sitting in a classroom or you know preparing for tests or anything to read Hutzpah and get something out of it and appreciate it for what it is. It's a pretty heady goal when you think about it to decide like, I'm gonna make this thing, we're gonna make this thing together that's going to reform Holocaust education and, and like change the perspective. But that was literally our talking and our thinking at the outset. And ultimately they, they made the decision to do two things. They wanted to make a comic book and a companion art exhibit. The two things kind of go hand in hand. Utilizing comics art forms to depict these narratives and to reposition the lens of Holocaust survivors and those who went through it from being victims to being heroes. And I imagine that's why you guys are choosing to frame it with the language of superheroes. Absolutely. That's exactly it. And we had to be clear from the outset, you know, we were not intending to tell superhero stories in the Holocaust because that was a question we often got. We wanted to tell the real stories of real people. We had one of our survivors who passed away a couple years ago. And this is somebody who we had uh, interacted with a good bit. His name is, it was Sam Gottesman. And Sam, he, was, he had been active as one of our survivor speakers. You know, he would come in, talk to classes. He was very good about telling his experience. And so I had heard his story and then he passed away. And then the, you know, we, the, the staff at the Holocaust Center, we went to his memorial service and I believe it was, it was either his son or his caregiver was uh, giving one of the eulogies. And they said something very simple. And they just said how he had gone through a lot in his life. And especially, you know, when he was younger, like he had, he had, he had suffered a lot. I don't know why, but in that moment, that hit me more than, and I'd heard his story. That was the thing. I knew, I was familiar with his story. It, there was an immediate connection that was forged between my own experiences. And suddenly I really understood about like how much he had gone through. And I just start crying and I tell you, but it's, again, you get joy. You can, there is joy to be found in that. I am, I am glad that I had that moment of realization of the, the, the enormity of what this person's life had been. And hopefully we keep that alive. I, I consider Hutzpah to be a spiritual successor to books like the Montgomery story, which was published in the 1950s that told the yeah. story of the Montgomery bus boycotts and Martin Luther King Jr. Now that book, as far as I'm concerned, is the single most important American comic book that's ever been published. Marcel, you are professional because that is the perfect segue to what I was just going to ask you about, which was literally going to talk about, you guys were able to do an exhibition talking about all this stuff, the, you know, from MLK to March, the civil rights and comics exhibition. Finish your thought, but I, I was going to bridge that to the same thing there with you, with talking about both that and the ex exhibition you guys got to do with March and Representative John Lewis. Mm -hmm. That book, the Montgomery story, Montgomery story came out in, I think it was 1957. Yeah. Now, just a few years prior to that, we had the publication of Dr. Frederick Wordham's book, Seduction of the Innocent. And his whole position theory was comics were at the root of juvenile delinquency. He just could not be dissuaded from that notion. And he was right. influential enough and he was persistent and loud enough that they got that book published. And that or congressional hearings, hearings Batman and Robin are making your kids gay. Was, mm -hmm. And then subsequently came the Comics Code Authority, which was the comic book industry having to self-police them, self-censor themselves, essentially. Exactly. And what that did is change the public relationship and perception of comics, because 
comics were created as a dis comic books, you know, whatever. They were created as a disposable medium, but not necessarily, not inherently a juvenile medium. But he changed the public perception of that to they were a juvenile medium. And unfortunately, the reaction of the industry itself was to kind of police itself in such a way that now that just emboldened this perception that it is a juvenile medium. So now they're considered disposable and juvenile. That's a hard place to come out of. Yeah. But within just two to three years, we had the publication of March, which, as far as I'm concerned, totally refutes that position. Because this is... This is a comic book that saved lives, like literally saved lives at that time, and has gone on to support activist movements and, uh, and, and social progression around the world. So you can't hold these two things, these two thoughts at the same time. Like you can't say they're a disposable juvenile medium, but they're also capable of producing this profound life-changing, these pro profound life-changing works. Like it's one or the other. And I am, obviously I'm going to, favor the, the the latter i got to meet john lewis i was going to ask to prepare for this i, I was doing some rereading <laughs> and so I, I was going through uh book two of march again which for people that are unfamiliar is john lewis's comics biography that he worked on with andrew aden and nate powell that came out a couple years ago and is able to kind of frame his story alongside the parallel of john lewis at Barack Obama's first inauguration. And I was asked by the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette and editor there, Tony Norman, I'll just thank Tony, to write a review of the third volume of March when that came out. And, it, you know, the, of the three volumes, that's the most dense. There's a lot going on in that, in that series, especially in that volume, because there's a lot that was going on in the world at that time. So it was, and it was obviously a positive review. So the Museum held an exhibit not too long after that and invited Mr. Lewis and the book's creators, Andrew Iden and Nate Powell, they invited them to come to Pittsburgh. So the exhibit itself opened at the August Wilson Center and we had an opening reception and he, he, he addressed the attendees and it was lovely. So, and I was asked if I could more or less to chaperone the, the three of them when they got to town. So I went over, I walked over to the hotel and met them. We, we walked back over to uh, the August Wilson Center. We went in the green room for a bit and there's food and things. And they, all three of them were lovely. Uh, Mr. Lewis, he was really great. He, now he, he, was, he was older and he was a little more sedate. I got the impression he was a little tired because they'd been promoting this book, but he was, he, was, he was wonderful, he was warm. And I got to ask him some questions that I had percolated since I'd written the review. I think that's so, this whole thing is so fascinating because I, I remember having this conversation around the last, the time that he passed last year, right? Mm -hmm. Where John Lewis, to me feels like one of those people that it's almost hard to believe that I was alive at the same time as. Agreed. Just yes. such like a titanic figure in this country's history, right? And so to be like in a very casual situation in a green room with him is really kind of funny, right? <laughs> yeah, I, again, things you just couldn't predict. And um, <laughs> at one point, we're talking about, because you know, the exhibit itself was about the history of political cartoons in the 20th century, specifically civil rights cartoons. And then uh, it focused on the Montgomery story and then the art of March itself. So it was like really a, a chronicle of, the, of this narrative. And so we get to talking about March. So he lets us know. So he got his copy of the Montgomery story directly from Martin Luther King Jr. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> as he's talking about this, you know, that's when it kind of clicked for me, like, oh, I am one person in this moment, I am one person removed from Martin Luther King Jr. 
Like, so, you know, when, when Barack Obama gave, gave Representative Lewis's eulogy, he referred to him as, as one of our founding fathers. And I thought that is completely apt. Like, I am right now sitting here talking to a founding father who is himself adjacent, directly adjacent to another founding father. And he volunteered in that moment, too, in talking about uh, the Montgomery story. He said, you know, a comic book changed my life. And I can't say it validated my life choices because my life, that was, I was on my path. Like, that's I was, sale. <laughs> right. Like yeah. I had my mission and all the things, but what it did do is it opened me up to the expanse of the worth of comics. And in my, there are moments now when I look at Hutzpah, a lot of moments where I consider what it's hopefully doing out there in the world, because my Hutzpah is also not just meant to document history. It's meant to do much what the Montgomery story did. It's meant to be informative to the world right now and, and, and give you lessons and things that help you walk in the world smarter and, and better and, you know, and, and, and safer. So, and making the world safer with other, for other people as well, like all of that. So if Hutzpah is capable of producing even one future John Lewis, everything was worth it but I'm greedy. I don't want to just make one more John Lewis. I want as many, we need as many John Lewis's as we can get in this, in the world. Um, and, and with the help of all the educators that we encounter, you know, we're able to keep all of these narratives alive and, and also teach students how to tap into the narratives around them every day. You know, we want them to be as aware of like community activists doing the work. All right, Marcel. And thanks so much, man, for jumping on and talking everything from your work, just talking comics in general. It's an absolute pleasure. Same here, Peter. Thank you for the work you do. Now, before my talk with Rayan, how about the school bus feature story? Schools across the country have been dealing with a school bus driver shortage all year long. And some districts even started paying parents affected by it. And I rode along on a school bus one morning in Rockford to hear about the shortage and how it's affecting drivers and students firsthand. It's early on Monday morning and bus number 430 is pulling out en route to pick up kids and drop them off at Riverdale Elementary. Amber Shellorn is behind the wheel, even though before this year, she wasn't typically a bus driver. She's a supervisor in the transportation department. Her day job is helping kids who miss their bus and fielding phone calls from parents. But because of the driver shortage, Shellhorn, along with administrators and even some mechanics, are driving every morning before they start their other jobs. How many more drivers could they hire before you'd be like, okay, I feel pretty good about this. We're like in an okay place. 20. Yeah. 20 more? <laughs> yeah. And that would just, to be able to breathe. Today, around 20 drivers called in sick, a few with COVID. Sometimes upward of 40 people call off, and that makes it impossible to cover every bus route. The district tries to cycle through which routes go uncovered, so it's not the same students being affected every day. Early in the year, 1,400 students would be left without a ride at some point in the school week. Shellorn says it's getting better, but on this day, there were still 22 routes where students had to find their own ride. Our route is an easy one. Only about a dozen elementary school kids, mostly half asleep. Other buses are much more packed with COVID rules relaxed. This month, our route has only been left uncovered once. But the shortage affects kids in other ways too. But before we get to that, Bus Dispatch has some news from the Transportation Center. 
Oh, we got an accident, see? There's been an accident with one of the buses. Everyone appears to be fine. The other vehicle, that driver was injured. No. Please send those two children to her bus and send her on her way. So that was our fault then. Because of that accident, students on that route are going to be 25 minutes late for school. So now all those kids are standing there. So now imagine if we're having school and it's winter time. Or even if it was raining right now, yeah. they're standing there. Back to how the shortage impacts students. Amber's day job includes picking up students and taking them to school in situations like this. But because she's driving a bus and there's nobody to supervise, those kids are late for school. Our route, on the other hand, is running smoothly. We're picking up our first kids now. Parents are hugging their kids and seeing them off to school. Good morning. Where's your mask? Good morning. You don't have a mask either. On top of the travel logistics aspect of bus driving, Shalorn also understands that her job is about the kids. She knows that what she says to them matters and tries to be a positive presence. We don't know what their home life is like. We don't know if there's love, food, stability, structure. We don't know. And they don't like hearing it, but it's the truth. These kids are hungry. They are abused. She keeps that spirit while also maintaining some semblance of order on her bus. Only once on our trip does she have to take charge. What's the problem in the back of my bus? Please stop. I'm writing you up. We'll see what you think about that. A few minutes later, around 7:10 in the morning, we pull into Riverdale Elementary. Sean parks the bus and then she makes her way to the back row to chat with that student. She hears about what's been bothering him, talks him down and relinquishes the write up. Finally, it's time to head into the school. Shellorn opens the door and the kids and their bright jackets and Spider-Man backpacks file out. Shellorn says it's not a bad job with the hours off during the day and new bonuses and benefits put in place because of the shortage. In the meantime, they're waiting to exhale as they try to make the wheels on the bus go round and round for as many students as they can. Now it's time for my conversation with Rayon Gibson, the elementary school principal behind the kids' book series, Dizwiz. We talk about how the books came out of themes he picked up during his time as a school counselor, like overcoming failure, resolving conflicts, and even food insecurity. On top of that, Rayon tells us the story of the counselor who changed his life when he was a student, and the student who changed his life that led him to be a counselor. Is this your first year as a principal? Yeah, as a principal, yeah. What was that like? It's like a lot of times when they talk about with like sports coaches, right? It's like, we want to come in here and establish a culture and like all that type of stuff. And then you come in in the year where it's the absolute hardest possible time to like establish a community. How do you do that? Man, it was extraordinarily awkward, extraordinarily interesting just because, you know, starting off that school year where, you know, everybody's remote, even though we're in the building, everyone is in their own room like, you know, talking on a Google Google Meet. So building relationships was extremely difficult. You know, it's, it's interesting too, because like you were a school counselor beforehand, right? Yeah, school counselor for about five years and assistant principal for two, then. Right, so like social, emotional health and like mental health was like top of the conversation this year. And like, that's also super difficult to do remotely to like be like, okay, you've got resources and people here for you but do it remotely in a way that like also feels authentic and like not super weird. Exactly, yeah. 
and SEL learning, man, it's all about those establishing those relationships and things of that nature. It's an interesting story that actually got me into uh, being a school counselor. Because uh, when I got into education, I started off as a paraprofessional. Yeah. Sure you know, so that's like an instructional assistant. So while I was working at an instructional assistant, I was working at a therapeutic day school. So a lot of times the students will be um, escalated and you have to de-escalate the students. Um, if you were having difficulty doing so, you have to refer them to a social worker or something like that who'll come in and uh, assist that student. But one day I was trying to de-escalate a student and uh, he had told me, you know, I just wish someone understood me the way I understood myself. And I was just like, man, I was super powerful because I think that's what we, re we all really want. You know, we just want someone to understand us on the same level that we understand ourselves. And that just one conversation and me having to refer him to a social worker um, just sparked my yearning for more knowledge. And then that's when I applied for a school counseling program, got into it, and uh, the rest has been history. But I yeah. still remember that quote verbatim to this day. Like, that changed the trajectory of my life. Yeah, and from there, you went and became a school counselor. One of the things that you did when you were a school counselor to try to just, like, ask questions and kind of, like, build out relationships with, with your students and stuff was asking them what the last two songs they listened to are. So I figured I would take this second to turn the tables on you and ask you, like, what were the last two, do you remember the last two songs that you listened to today? Yeah, yeah. actually, uh, I remember the, it was Loyalty. Pull that up. That's a great question, man. I like how you flipped that. By Anne-Marie, Loyalty. Say so kudos to you. You get an A++++. You've done your homework massively. Excellent. Uh, Anne-Marie, Loyalty, and uh, Leighton Green never knew what the last two songs I listened to. So what do you think? What do you think that says about your mood today? Loyalty. Uh, loyalty. I never knew. Both of those are relationship-based songs, you know. And uh, I'm in a new relationship, so hey, it's all flowing pretty good. I'm pretty happy about that. That's hilarious that you say that too, because I, I checked myself too. I went on Spotify afterwards. And I was like, "What's the last two songs I, I listened to?" And the last two were uh, "Dead of Night" by an artist named Orville Peck uh -huh. and uh, "Bound to the Kanye West song. And those are also like relationship songs too. So, yeah. and like, I'm also in a great relationship too. So, I mean, like, we're feeling great. I feel good about this. <laughs> you know, I wanted to ask about your, your book series that you have about Dizwiz. And, you know, I was thinking about it because uh, especially the first one stems out of an experience that you had with your son in T-ball, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I'm a huge baseball fan. I played baseball growing up. My dad did too. And so like baseball and like bonding with my dad are like very much one in the same thing. So like fathers and stun stories, you had me there and then you wrote baseball into it. And I was like hook, line, sinker to bring in the fish in here. You had me with that. I was in. Oh man, that's great. That's great to hear. Uh, and you know, what's crazy is like, um, cause I get this a lot. Like a lot of people ask me about like the start of the series. And, um, you know, I always tell them the story about, you know, what made me write the first book. But um, oftentimes what they don't know is just like what, I guess, the evolution of the series. Right. Because although we've like J July 7th, 2020 will be my one year of me publishing my first book. Mm -hmm. And December 2nd is the, fir the first year of me owning my, my company. And the evolution of it is that um, a lot of people ask, like, how do I get the themes in my book? And it goes back to when I was a school counselor. Because what I noticed is a lot of themes of what are students coming to me about most often. And in my five years, I started to identify like, oh man, conflict resolution is one. And, you know, a, a variety of other topics that I'll be, you know, each uh, theme I'll be putting into a book. So the first theme is like, like I said, uh, just had that experience with my son. And then I was like, oh man, everyone needs to learn about believing in themselves, overcoming failure, obstacles. And then I was like, man, what's the next one? Then I thought about, oh man, relationships with others because, Oftentimes people come to a counselor because you have a conflict with someone or someone's different than you. So that's where Hungry Charlie came in. And not to mention, you know, me being the director of the Bar Food Mart, I was like, hey, this is an outstanding opportunity. 
and especially during the pandemic where, you know, um, many people are having scarcity and resources and food, I thought, hey, that's a great topic to put out there. And uh, the next two topics uh, that, that are in the, the books are also themes that I, you know, came across just as being a, a professional in, in that field as well. Yeah, the Hungry Charlie one, especially too, stood out to me because, you know, like you mentioned during the pandemic with the Barb Food Mart, thinking about food insecurity and thinking about, you know, even like eating disorders with, with kids in school where, you know, you see in there and you're like, oh, there's a new kid and you just, you know, he's hungry and that's kind of it. But then like diving into like, okay, that's a symptom of something. And then you as a counselor, like, let's dive into that and figure out what's going on. Yeah. And then it also gave me an opportunity to infuse a little bit of social justice into it as well, because I know that like when I'm looking at, uh, say, for instance, you watching commercials about feed the children and things of that nature, you always typically see like a white person typically helping a, a minority student or minorities who are just in need. And I wanted to kind of empower minorities to say, hey, we can help out as well when we're in those situations, too. So kind of flip the roles a little bit and, uh, you know, provide something for the uh, the media that's not often as uh, seen in those dynamics. No, for sure. And, you know, I was thinking about the books that my, like, my dad and my stepdad would read to me when I was a kid and, like, those types of exactly, like, you know, youth picture books. And, you know, it's hilarious. The one that came to my mind there was one that, you know, my name is Peter and my dad's name is Tim. And there was a book that he read that was called Penguin Pete and Little Tim. So, like, the characters were, like, actually named after us, too, but they were, like, penguins trying to get home in a snowstorm too and I was like what an awesome book I love it <laughs> yeah and the fact like those dynamics like I didn't when I was looking at um just like different kids books like I didn't see too many like father-son books you know yeah. um so I was like you know what that, that's a different dynamic and plus you know me and my son like we just have like that's literally my best friend like we have an awesome time like uh, and uh I was like hey it's a great way to infuse my legacy into literature and he has, he has the same, you know, similar name to me, then, you know, he just kind of goes on with that path. So hopefully, uh, you know, it impacts him uh, in a way that I wanted to impact others as well. No, and I also feel like you really remember those experiences. Like, even if you don't remember every single book that you read, you know, with your parents or whatever, like, like I remember all those, like, I remember so many books that we, that my dad, you know, read to me. And those are things that stick with you for a long, long time. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. And man, it is so awesome that like when you read a book to him and he knows that like the character is based on him. Like uh, after I got into books, uh, like I said, like it's, like the evolution of the series has just been coming just like, and I've been having so many different opportunities um, because it started off as just books. And now uh, the books are uh, a means to give the students or the readers like those social emotional skills that are going to make them sound um, individuals and adults, but I'm also providing professional development to the adults about social emotional learning. So that way, you know, cause I'm, I'm real, SEL is my, my lifeblood. Like I absolutely, it's no, you can be an all A student, be a Harvard grad, but if every time you get upset, you punch someone in the face, you're not going to be successful. We got to teach you those pivotal skills that are going to make you uh, a well-rounded individual and look at the whole child. So I figured, you know, let's, let's tackle it from both angles. Does your son, he, he recognizes that he's the star of this series? Does he, does he feel that? Yeah, you know, and like, like I said, like it started off as just books. And then I was like, man, when you're reading a kid a book, what do you usually have? And I was like, well, typically it's at nighttime. They typically have teddy bears. So now I got into like Dizwiz teddy bears. So I just got the first prototype, which is right here. This is based off the character in the, the first book, uh, number 28, baseball, got the Dizwiz on the back, you know, but uh, 
But yeah, so he sleeps with that every night. That's like in his next pillow. And he's like, and just seeing him like, you know, cuddle up with it just kind of shows me the impact the series is having on him. That's so fun. That's so fun. I don't have too many more questions for you. I don't want to take up your whole afternoon, but you know, I am curious that this is a show where, you know, it's about inspirational educators and, and people coming up to us and saying, hey, this, this person is, is doing really great stuff. This person really, really helped me out. But did you have someone that you had in the classroom that were like this, if not made me want to be a teacher, but at least made me be like, education is an option. I think I could do that. The one person that stands out is named Judy Johnson. She was at West Aurora High School. She retired. I've been trying to find her for years. Never been able to find her. Um, but she was a uh, my school counselor at uh, West Aurora. I was a very smart kid at West Aurora. Um, you know, I had like a 3.6 GPA in my senior year, and I had not filled out one college application. College wasn't really talked about in my household as much, um, so I had no plans post graduation. And then uh, she called me into her office one day. Was like, "Hey, you have a 3.6 GPA." We're approaching, you know, the end of the year. You haven't filled out one application. I want you to fill out this NIU application. I gave her every excuse I could, you know, the, you know, being a senior in high school, being a cool kid. I wasn't really thinking about post-graduation. She, you know, disregarded every excuse. Like, no, you can have a seat right here. Made me fill it out. It was the only application I ever filled out uh, for college and high school. I got accepted to NIU, and that completely changed the trajectory of my life. And who would have known that? having that experience and then having the experience with the student as a paraprofessional that I've become a school counselor and then have that same impact on other students as well. So the way to just work together to just, you know, um, the complexities and the interwovenness of it just kind of reinforces my faith because I'm a faithful person and that I'm, hey, I'm heading down the right direction and the right path that uh, following my purpose, so to speak. And uh, I just wish I could really uh, find her and just tell her how much that one situation really meant to me because, uh, her to see my GPA, see, see potential in me that I didn't see in myself and make sure that I um, did the necessary things I did uh, or needed to do so that I could obtain, you know, something greater. And that's the impact I want to have on everybody I, I meet. And that just kind of falls into the forefront of my series. Like I want to have that type of impact on the people who read my books or who has my PD and things like that. So when I read some of these reviews or some people come up to me and tell me, hey, I told my uh, kid that, you know, today is going to be better than yesterday because he was having difficulty during e-learning. And I'm like, man, that's awesome. So that's kind of that Judy Johnson effect that, you know, happened to me. So that's yeah. full circle. The circle of life, Lion King. <laughs> yeah, that's, I was, I was going to say that's the same type of thing with your series, right? Is it like, especially that first book is really about like, you know, believing in yourself, but like we need a support system of other people to believe in us a lot of times before we can really do it for ourselves. Cause sometimes, you know, we're not even, you know, we're just trained to not even believe that from ourselves that like, I can do this thing. It takes other people, especially, you know, like a teacher or like a parent or someone else to say that first. Yeah, exactly. And one of my favorite things to ask as a counselor, well, I'm gonna give you two. Ooh. You're great at just, uh, you know, at these questions and I love how you flipped it. Like I'm still astonished by that, but, uh, so um, as a counselor, like one of my favorite questions to ask or what was to ask my uh, clients were like, or my students were, you know, how are you different leaving my office than you were entering my office? You know, because every interaction we, we have should have some type of impact on you. And I just wanted to know what kind of impact that was. So that was uh, something that, you know, that, that just really resonated with me as well. So I like to be able to have those impact on me. Uh, the other question, uh, which we, we talked about already was the music question that you still thoroughly impressed me on. <laughs> 
I love it. And we got the, we got the Dizwiz merch now. We've got the stuffed animal, or the, the, you know, the, the stuffed Dizwiz. We've got the books now. Like, do, do we got the, the Dizwiz animated series coming up? Like, and you know, I would love to get that in the works too. You know? We'll just speak that. We'll speak that into the universe. We'll just say that. <laughs> I love the way you think, Peter. Yeah, <laughs> let's speak that into the universe. You also got PD, you know, uh, on my website, thedizwizseries.com. I got uh, other educators that can go there if they wanted me to talk to their class about certain things that they want PD on certain things. So building leaders, if you want me to stop by, you know, and have some SEL PD, do some team building, do other things like that. You know, all those services are available. Um, I have a great, uh, I have a wide array of PD um, options that I can provide different areas, different people who may need it. So, yeah. I'm sure there's people that are super interested that to listen to this podcast. I love it. All right, man. Well, hey, thanks so much again. I really appreciate it. I had a great time. I hope you did too. Me too. And uh, hey, uh, I look forward to um, touching base with you again in the future. And thanks again for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. And now the final chat of the day and of 2021 my conversation with high school psychology teacher and esports coach, Jeff Pittner. I remember two years ago, this moment just sticks with me. And I just shared it with a student yesterday. We walked into our gaming club. This kid, it was his first time ever coming to the club. He he asked me about it. I escorted him down. I walked him down. I said, okay, let's go. And I'll show you where it's at. And it's in the library. And he walks in, he sees the people there. He sees some kids playing games over here, some more kids playing games over there. And he stops, he drops his things. He raises his hands in the air and he goes, my people, I am here. I have found them. And everyone just kind of looks at him and goes, hey. And it was just a great like welcoming moment because just bring them in the fold. And then they all started singing the Halo theme together. And that oh for me, gosh. I was like, oh, it's, it's a bit cringy much for that's me. It. But And if you know the Halo theme song, that's like way eerier than what you think if you don't know that song. <laughs> it's very operatic and orchestral. And it's very just a so. room full of voices filling the air. Wow. And then just laughter following immediately after. And it was just a phenomenal moment that just created something. Just like, this is why I'm doing this, right? That I am here with these kids, for these kids, in the place they need me to be. This year has like the first IHSA state series for esports, right? Correct. You know, we've had kids get scholarships for playing and it sounds ridiculous. You look back, I'm thinking back to myself as a kid getting get off that video game. What's that ever going to do for you? Uh, go do something exactly. productive with your time. Stop hitting your brother, whatever the case is. And then now it's into, hey, I had a kid that just got a full tuition scholarship to go play at the college level. And he wasn't like the world's best player. He's getting his college mostly funded. And it's just yeah. phenomenal just because he's, it's just like, like I explained to a lot of folks, I, we had some arguments when we had his big signing, we made a big deal out of it as a school and I'm glad we did. Yeah. We I saw an article media. from when he was the first person, I think his name was, his name was Zach Diamond. I yes. think yes, I, I, I noticed Diamond. that because I'm like, that's the coolest name of all time. There's no way that's a real <laughs> name. That's why it stuck with me just now. His story is a phenomenal one. That's that it's, you know, you always hear coaches say like, here's this moment with this player that we just kind of hit it off. But his and mine is definitely one of those classic stories you hear of like coach and player working together. He comes to me freshman year and says, I know you guys have esports. I know you do league of legend. I'm not very good at it. I'm a fairly low rated player. I've only been playing for a couple of weeks or maybe a month, but I'm going to work with you and I'm going to dedicate working with you for the next four years. And I want to be the first person from this school to get a scholarship. And I said, I'm there for you. Let's do this. It's too perfect that that actually ended up that happened. It's hard. You can almost get overwhelmed when you really think about that. But it is, right. it's incredible to think that yeah. just the, the branching out effect of the impact you can have on somebody's life. And as a teacher, we can't like take that for granted. We can't take that even 
we do need to consider that because we are going to have quite the swath of lives that have been affected through our experience. And what is that going to look like? Is that going to be the guy that was demanding compliance in his classroom and not necessarily demanding learning? Uh, are you going to have the person that's actually authentically getting to know their students? I've started using more restorative justice training in my classroom and just getting to know my students is completely different now than it used to be. I thought we had good discussions and I knew who they were, but I still had five kids in every room that I could barely tell you their name by the end of the year. What are some and of the big things with that restorative justice piece that have really been eye-opening for you? Just how much the kids want it. We had uh, a discussion the other day talking not necessarily about classroom rules, but we made classroom agreements to one another. And the reason behind that psychology, but coming back at it, that if the kids are part of that process that creates the agreements that they operate under, they're more willing to follow those agreements. They feel like they have a sense of ownership towards those rules. Absolutely. And what goes beyond that to make all of those, uh, the administrator checkoffs on the, the list of things they're looking for, observable things in the classroom, when they make those agreements to each other, they're also much more willing to call each other out on. So if somebody's not adhering to the rules and they came up with those rules, then they're going to point at each other and say, hey, right now we agreed to do this and you're not doing that. That's affecting me. I had a kid one year, the agreement was that they needed to be, let's use the phrase considerate of one another was what they agreed to. Because the question that prompts that discussion is just, we talk about what kind of a person are you when you're at your best? Every kid shares the five things that describe them when they're at their best. And then at the end of it, you're going to be blown away if you just do this, even with a group of like five kids. And you just say, when you are at your best, how do you describe yourself in five ways? And you hear them talk about those five ways. You're like, this is an awesome person. I want to get to know this person. I want to spend time with this person. And every kid in the room is amazing. Even your most hard scrabble kid that doesn't really want to participate. If he's willing to open up, if she's willing to open up and tell you these five things, you're like, no, this kid's cool. That's the same reason I don't listen to any advice from other teachers about the kids coming into my room the next year. Uh, they say, hey, you've got so-and-so coming. I can tell you something. No, don't tell me anything about that kid other than their name. That's all I need to know. And then beyond that, I'm going to find out who that kid is. And it's a lot of work. But the kid, after they saw this moment, somebody wasn't really responding properly in a discussion. They felt like somebody wasn't given their proper due. And they said, hey, look at that wall. We have those circles put on the wall with the agreements we made to each other. You're not doing that one that says considerate. He goes, oh, my bad. And then just kind of backs off and diffuses the situation. And just that moment, like, oh, they... It does work. And at first they might joke around with it because, you know, I kind of encourage it. Like, hey, you see somebody being disrespectful, call them out and say, hey, I'm not at my best when you're disrespecting me. You heard me what I said when I was at my best, that I was funny, that I was a leader and so on and so on. But you're not respecting me. So I can't be a leader right now. And they're joking at first. They laugh. But then it becomes more real as they keep doing it. And they do it again and again. And suddenly it's no longer a joke. And they, they see that it's helping them. Yeah, I'm really fascinated to think because last year, Mm-hmm. How big of a of an overall change was it in terms of just the sociology of the class itself and how you interacted with it and how they interacted with each other? I mean, even now, now that we have all the kids back in person every day, it's still the classroom itself just feels drastically different. There's just more on their minds. You can yeah. definitely see it. The, the, there's kind of that stress on their face all the time of I've got to do this. I've got to do that. But it's the classroom, honestly, is pretty quiet. Like I don't have to do as much classroom management as I used to, but it definitely is 
more difficult for them to speak up right now. So I'm trying to use technology to kind of bridge that gap and give them, even the, the kids that aren't as outgoing, a chance to have a voice. And that's one of the most powerful things to an adolescent, to a young person, just knowing that somebody's listening to you, especially yeah. the kids from a troubled background, a troubled home. Maybe they don't get to have a family dinner. And so they just they need some way to speak and know that others can hear them. Because we've all experienced that moment. You're having dinner with some friends, you tell a joke, and then nobody laughs. And then somebody next to you repeats the joke you just said, and then everybody laughs. You're like, what the heck, man? Like, that was yeah. my thing. And you're going to steal it. Is that because you hate me? And they start creating these stories. It's like, they just didn't hear you. But knowing that every person in the room hears you and what you have to say, and nobody's judging you right now is so big for the kids. I have kids that look at me, they'll come in and the start of class and go, can we do a circle today? We have to do a circle. I'm like, you guys are teenagers. Like this doesn't feel like what you or your age group would be saying, right? Yeah. But this kid comes in and says, I got to talk about something. We got to do this. I said, okay, no problem. Let's do it. And we just had a quick chat, took us three minutes of class and he got it off his chest. Or let's say, heaven forbid, there was a fight that happened during the lunch period. These things happen and the kids are going to buzz about it. That's, you know, that's part of that human interaction. They want to talk about it. Well, if I address it in that circle, well, now we're taking care of it in that three minute span. Nobody talks about it the rest of the period because they got it out of their system. They don't need to yeah. whisper about it throughout the whole day. So it's been really useful. I've started using it with my teams, these kinds of just discussions. It's just authentic human conversation. That's why I really value these kinds of restorative discussions. And I haven't really had the opportunity to use it with discipline. I know some have had a lot of success using it as a disciplinary action, just a chance to kind of say, not why did you do this, but more so tell me where you're at. Uh, where are we going to go from here? How are we going to repair this damage? Because there's been some damage done, either physically or emotionally, but how are we going to resolve it? I've got a couple core questions for you left there. I have one more psychology, sociology related one for you. And then we'll move into a couple final, more fun esports related one. So one of the questions, the, the sociology psychology one is one that I like to end pretty much all my interviews on no matter what the topic, but for you, is there something about teaching psychology and sociology that you wish more people talked about? Well, the one I always stress with the kids the most is something that most Americans are very guilty of. Uh, I know I'm guilty of it from time to time. It's an essential psychological concept. Looking at confirmation bias is obviously a major issue when you talk about politics and you just yeah. see what you're looking for. And we talk about, okay, Friday the 13th, is it actually spooky, scary, or do you just remember it better because it's Friday the 13th? But more importantly, looking at the idea that looking at people as living their own life. So maybe you got cut off in traffic. You don't know their story of why they're cutting you off. Maybe they're distracted. That's possible. You're right. But the real concept looking into maybe they're having a bad day. Maybe they're exhausted because they were up all night at the hospital with a loved one. You don't know their story, but we're quick to judge. And when it's us, we're great at admitting uh, I had a bad day. Uh, I said those things. It was hurtful. I'm sorry I lashed out in anger because, because. But we see somebody else. They're not allowed to have a because. They're just dumb. They're just bad drivers. And we like to name what state they're from when we look at their license plate. That's what we did in my family growing up. Yeah. Look at this Indiana idiot. Yeah, I, I recently learned my girlfriend's from Wisconsin. I recently learned that they have like a whole derogatory nickname for Illinois drivers. And I had no idea. We don't stop to really consider even for a moment. Why did they do that? 
you know, and so that's what I stress with my kids. I, granted, it's part of my content is what we have to talk about. We talk about that, and it's definitely an American issue more than it is in other countries, whereas in uh, more collectivist societies, they view it the other way around, where they view it's always the situation that influences behavior and not the personal disposition, whereas we're the other way around. We say, that's just who you are. That's the person you are. And so I just encourage my students and I encourage others to start thinking about it in that way. Like, okay, the kid that got a zero on that exam, give them a moment and think that maybe they're having a really bad day and start over with that process. Maybe they're not, maybe they really are dumb. Maybe they really didn't prepare well enough, but just this once, give them a moment, give them that benefit of a moment and saying, okay, what's really going on? What's going on in your life? And how many times I used to, you know, thinking back to my early years of teaching, if I, I talked to a, a former student of mine on a Zoom call last year, just wanted to check in and give her an interview real quick. Like I said, we're talking about happiness in class. And so yeah. I wanted to interview people about happiness and tell me your sources of happiness for you. And so I said, here's an excuse. I want to talk to my first students and the ones that added me at least. Uh, and so I talked to her in, about that. And it was that same kind of concept. Like, okay. Why do we care about what other people go through? Why don't we care about what other people go through? And it was a a great discussion to have just having that connection still to a former student of that nature and just kind of being able to it's great knowing that I have people that I have touched their lives that I haven't seen in years and they still they tell stories about something that happened in my class or some yeah. activity we did and I'm not even thinking about them I'm not thinking about that year I'm not thinking about the project we did but it's still there that, that legacy is kind of lasting all right Jeff my last question for you this is kind of the obligatory one what is for you what's your favorite game of all time I'm going to show my age with it because it's going to, it always goes back to what you were doing and how old you were when you were doing it. Same thing happens to all of our likes. Another yeah. psychology concept we talk about when your favorite music, not only is it when you were a teenager, typically what you remember as your best memories of music, but it also is when your parents were teenagers, oddly enough. So you liked the music you liked as a teenager in high school. And then you also liked the music your parents liked when they were teenagers. You heard it growing up. Is that why so, I listened to Steely uh, Dan? <laughs> that that yeah. could be it. <laughs> that's why I listened to some Bread and some Queen. That's what my dad listened to all the time. But yeah. that's, not, that's not my thing. That was his thing. But okay, so the gaming, uh, we had an 8-bit machine. Uh, we had the Sega Master System growing up. Granted, my dad brought his uh, his Atari 2600, Atari 5200. He had an old Pong machine at my mom's uh, dad's house. But really, the, the one I sat down with the most, the one I played the most, was a game called Wonder Boy. It's actually got recently remastered, remade for current generation. They just kind of updated the graphics, and you could press a toggle switch to make it back to the original 8-bit graphics uh, and the music. And it was just kind of an adventure game, uh, a chance to morph into different animals and go fight the bosses and stuff like that. But it was just that uh, it was difficult. All those games were hard back then. Yeah. It was because they were they were designed to eat your quarters. That was the whole purpose of those games. So every time you made progress, it felt like a great sense of relief. And I went back to it and played it again. And I did okay. I, I, I'm probably better playing it now than I was back then. I would think that I wouldn't be as good because I'm not playing it as much now. But I either look back and look at my previous self, like, man, I was really bad at games. Or, <laughs> How did I not yeah. see this or obvious I was, clue? I was a or... child also, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I had friends that, like, played Pokemon when they were kids and, like, didn't realize that you could get a flashlight to make your way through a dark cave and just spent hours aimlessly barging into walls until they got out. They're like, I had no idea that it was easier. <laughs> And we had games that my brother and I would play a lot. I'd always force him to be the second player for uh, many reasons. One being yeah. that I was older. So, you know, he would not get the good controller or anything of that nature. He'd get the controller that kind of works. Yeah. Uh, but we definitely um, play that together. And it's, it's the language we had together. And it's the language our kids have today. So it's definitely 
something that needs to be done with them and for them. So that's why I'm glad I'm able to do so. It's been such a treat for me to, uh, like, if you tell myself when I'm a kid that, okay, you're going to be a teacher someday. And on top of it, you're going to be in charge of the gaming club. You're going to have the latest game consoles on hand in the school library for kids to hang out and play with every Friday and just kind of chill, just have a space to be and not have to worry about anything and then go to the, and then go to the football game afterwards and then do it again next week. Like, no, there's no way they're going to let me do that in school. No, there's absolutely no way. (laughs) Or on top of it, tell me that I can do it with a virtual reality headset. Uh, it's, It's just, great to work with the kids and have them see them have the fun and just get to know each other and you know we did a discussion one day just kind of passing around um i had a i don't know what i had uh, i had my little uh fallout uh yeah. vault boy here and we passed that around the room and everyone talked about why they were there what games they wanted to play and some moment they had in gaming that they resonated with and every kid shared and i saw one kid look at another and he go you know what i've seen you before you know but i never had a reason to talk to you I'm glad we got to talk right now because you and I both play the same game. So let's go play and talk. And so it's just like, hey, (laughs) they're doing that thing. They're humans. They're existing together in a space and they're not worried about all those other barriers that prevent kids from spending time with each other. You know, race, whatever the case, uh, social and economic status, all the grade, all of those things that might be a barrier for a kid ever getting to know each other. The one common common denominator, they play games. It gets so many kids open up. I talked to one therapist that said that if they have a kid that's not opening up, that's all they have to say. Hey, what games do you play? And then suddenly, <laughs> here it goes. He wants to tell you all about whatever game he is that he's playing. So it's uh, just great to be able to allow our kids to have that space where they can be themselves. All right, Jeff. Well, again, hey, man, thanks so much. I had a blast. I hope you had fun talking about yeah. all this stuff. I really appreciate it, man. Absolutely. We got more tryouts to get ready for next week. So, you know, the esports thing is go. A big thank you again to everyone who's listened to another year of Teacher's Lounge. We really do appreciate every single person that takes the time to listen, to nominate an educator in their life who made some kind of impact on them, and the folks who tell us about stories that we should be covering. However you've interacted with this show, honestly, it really does mean a lot, and we hope that you've enjoyed the stories and perspectives we've had on, especially in another deeply strange school year and calendar year. As always, feel free to nominate a teacher in your life to be on our show. It's how we get great guests like Marcel, Rayon, and Jeff. Send them our way to teacherslounge at niu.edu. Subscribe to the Teacher's Lounge newsletter. Definitely do that. Keep up to date on everything having to do with the show. A big shout-out and a hearty thank you to the Northern Illinois band Kind Ofs for the music you hear each and every episode. Thanks to Spencer Tritt for the Teacher's Lounge logo that you see. I've been your host, Peter Medlin, and we'll be back in January 2022 with more Teacher's Lounge. We'll see you later.